started a, uh, a new series a couple weeks ago based on this book that I was kind of led, I think, to, to start 10 years ago, never finished, entitled Because My God Is God. I would call it an apologetics kind of thing, but it's more of an unapologetic look at Christianity. Um, and so we started then from there saying, well, this is kind of the, the, the theology of the church, and it's a, it, you all have a right to know that. And that's kind of when we started going through this in our, in our sixth year here. And uh, we started a sub-miniseries inside of that called The Bible. And it's a three-part series. We're, we're in the second part of the Bible, and we're on the Can I Trust the Bible section. Last week, I talked about kind of where the Bible came from and how you end up with the 66 books you did end up with and uh, why that's really important. And that was last week. This week, we're going to get to the Can I Trust It? And there's a lot of talk right now. Um, if you look in some YouTube channels or Facebook or stuff, that they've found all kind of inconsistencies in the Bible and that's kind of very popular. A lot of people, there was a, there was a best-selling book called uh, Misquoting Jesus. Best-selling because John Stewart got a hold of it, had the author on, and everybody in Hollywood bought it, and no one's read it. Because if you read it, you'd see that the author, even in it, says, this is really small stuff, and it really doesn't affect any of the real teachings of Christianity. But I was going to go into all that, but I thought, I'm just going to take the same stance that a very famous pastor named Charles Spurgeon took when someone asked him if he is prepared to defend the Bible. He said, defend the Bible. I would sooner defend the lion. You know, the Bible's fine. It's, uh, it's the most scrutinized book in the history of mankind. It's been poked and prodded and looked at for 2,000 years by some really good scholars, both Christians and atheists. They've tried to disprove it. It has withstood it for 2,000 years. Some, you know, wise guy with a Mevo camera and a YouTube channel did not discover anything that the scholars haven't already known. So uh, I'm just going to skip on to that. I'm going to go back to something that I said when we first introduced the topic of the Bible, because the chapter in the book is like this, the Bible is the truth, or why I believe every word of the Bible is inspired by God, even though I know that it wasn't. Now, I understand that that subtitle is a little bit provocative. It's supposed to be, it's what we writers call a hook, to get you to want to read the chapter. Um, but it is a little bit purposely provocative, and it did not pass the escape of my wife, who, as you all know, she's the Pharisee of the family, I'm the Sadducee of the family, and so we didn't make it to lunch before, we, now wait a minute, are you trying to tell me you don't believe the Bible's inspired word of God? I said, yes, I do, I just don't believe every word in the Bible was inspired by God. I believe it, the Bible is inspired by God, but not every word. Now, that's actually a, a problem, it really is, honestly, for a Christian to say. You know, interestingly, Scripture says the Scripture is Scripture. Uh, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. I believe that. I absolutely, positively believe that. But I have a concern when we start saying every dot and tittle in the Bible, every a and or the in the Bible was inspired by God. For one thing, it wasn't written in English. But beyond that, uh, I have three kind of things that kind of keep me from just saying, oh, every word must be totally exactly the word God meant for us to have. And then I'll tell you why that really doesn't matter. But let me tell you about that first. First of all, um, inspiration is very difficult to retain in my opinion, and I have had moments in my life where I've actually felt inspired by God, where I've really felt like God spoke to me. And there have been many, and it's nothing earth-shattering. It's nothing like Moses or Paul or anything like that. Uh, but I talked about this before. One happened about seven years ago where I was kind of having a conversation with myself. I don't know if anybody else does that, if it's just me, but sometimes I'm in the car, and I'll be kind of walking through something in my head. And I was actually thinking about, we were planning to move to Cranberry, and I was thinking through all that, and right in the middle of the conversation, God interrupted. 
message. So he didn't really speak to me. He kind of jumped into my head. And, and his thought was suddenly there next to my thought. And it was different than my thought. It was brighter than my thought. And that's why I think it was, think it was his. He was also correcting me. And it was small. I'm not going to go into it. I've gone into it before. But it was, it was still dramatic. You know, it was about a minute and a half. I felt like God was correcting some things I was thinking. And um, I don't know why, because they were small things. Really, honestly, I've been off more than that in my life. And God didn't say anything. But for whatever reason, he stepped in. And I wanted to relay this to Victoria when I got home. I was driving home. So about five minutes have passed, and I go and I said, I gotta tell you something happened was kind of kind of weird. And I go to describe this to her, and already parts of it had kind of grown a little dimmer in my memory. It was just that fast I was starting to lose some of it. I guess it's kind of like when somebody asked Sam Shoemaker once, Are you were you um, um, filled with the Holy Spirit? He said, Yes, but I leak. And that's kind of how this is. You know, there was a little bit of leaking going on. And, and as I was trying to explain it to her, she'd ask me questions like, wait a minute, let me. And so after that was done, I went and wrote it down because I didn't want to lose this. And so I went and I, I wrote it. And even there, I lost even more. I think it's incredibly hard to, for a human mind to, to, to contain uh, heavenly thoughts for very long. Now, I do understand that I, I'm on a whole different level from Moses or, P, or Peter or Paul, but I still think we all kind of suffer a little bit for this thing called being human. Second uh, Peter actually kind of is exhorting the Christians about this a little bit in his, his letter. He says, look, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I'm still on earth. I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. It's hard remembering things. Remembering is hard. And, and I think it's really hard to sometimes remember everything about uh, a, a kind of an inspirational moment because God just speaks more fully than anything else. And it's really hard. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, some of you may know, um, I, have a, I come from a multilingual household. There's four languages spoken in my house. Not by me, but there's four languages spoken in my house. We've got Ukrainian sometimes spoken, uh, Russian, and uh, English, of course, and Yinzer, because I had to have one, you know. So, but, but sometimes Victoria, who's very fluent in Russian and, and, and pretty f- darn fluent in English, and I will sit down and we'll be talking about something, and she'll be trying to express something, and she's trying to c- come up with the right English word to match the Russian word that she knows, especially if she's trying to tell me like Russian poetry or something, and she's trying to bring that, and we'll sometimes, you know, I can give her the word, pretty good vocabulary. Sometimes we talk about it for some time, and I never can quite come up with the word she's looking for, and we have to simply settle for, well, it means this phrase, right? We can't find the word. Now, if that is the difficulty that we have expressing human thoughts from one human language to another human language, can you imagine the difficulty there must be expressing a heavenly thought from the tongues of angels and putting into a human language of any kind? I don't care, Greek, Hebrew, Sanskrit, it really doesn't matter. It's very difficult. And there are sometimes I think the words just aren't there. You know, Maybe if you combined all the languages of the world, that word would be there, but every language seems to be good at describing something and not others. And finally, the third reason, and this is the main reason, honestly, is something that I call the Inigo Montoya Trust Corollary. Um, probably the second most quoted source here in Spirit Chapel is the Princess Bride, I think. But So there was this moment in the Princess Bride where Inigo Montoya is trying to convince the man in black that he can trust him. If you remember, this, took place, this takes place on the mountain. I promise I will not kill you until you reach the top. That's very comforting, but I'm afraid you'll just have to wait. I hate waiting. I could give you my word as a Spaniard. No good. I've known too many Spaniards. 
So when someone says, well, the book was written by humans, my response is no good. I've known too many humans. And, and the thing is that humans are really good at one thing, mucking things up. I mean, really, if you look from the, from the beginning of the world, the Garden of Eden, paradise, perfect. What happens? We mess it up. And we go off from there to mess up everything. We mess up countries. We mess up churches. We mess up families. We mess up marriages. But now I'm going to believe that for 66 bright shining moments, exactly what flowed through the spirit flowed through the ink and onto the paper. I have a hard time with that. I just really honestly do. Now there is a problem with what I'm telling you. Because one of the founding principles of the Protestant church especially is that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. You may have heard that expression. Inerrant word of God. That means it's the word of God without error. And if I'm saying that, well, I think probably somehow some humanistic things got in there or we forgot or whatever, then what I'm adding into this is this idea that the Bible can have error in it. And that is a problem, right? So um, what I'm going to say next is going to seem contradictory, but knowing all this, I still believe that every word of the Bible is true. I treat every word of the Bible as though it's true. And it might seem like I've lost my mind, but actually I've come to this after quite a bit of time. So let me explain how this actually happened in the middle of an argument that I was having. It was a discussion. It wasn't too bad. But those of you who know, I'm, I'm not a full-time pastor. In fact, I don't get paid for doing this. So you get what you pay for. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a full-time tech guy. Now, I don't know why, but for some reason in the tech field, there's a lot of atheists. I run into them all the time. Maybe, every, maybe that's just the world today. I don't know. But in my world, I run into them all the time. And so I, I was out in California at the time, because that's where I worked. And a guy sat down with me over lunch, a guy I'd been working with, and he'd found out I was a Christian. And he gave me one of the weirdest backhanded compliments I think I've ever gotten. He goes, I can't believe you're a Christian. I said, really, why? He says, you seem so intelligent. He was like, okay, I'm not sure exactly what to do with that, but thank you. Um, so we started talking, and it was good because uh, it was actually a discussion. It's very hard to have a discussion like that. Usually people start yelling at each other. But we started having a discussion, and pretty soon you know, he drills down to what I believe about the Bible, because that's a big part of any kind of debate you're going to have with any atheist, and they know it, so they're going to get there quick. And so he says, well, if you admit that there might be error somewhere, and you don't even know where, you don't even know how much, um, then you have to understand that your religion is false. I said, well, okay. I was with you until that last one. What, where's that coming from? He said, well, if the Bible has error and you don't know where the error is and all of your teaching comes from the Bible, you can't tell me that this teaching doesn't come from the part with error. Therefore, everything you have is fruit from a poisonous tree and therefore you can't really believe any of it. Right? And that's the problem, by the way, when you admit that, yeah, there might be some error. So um, I said, okay. And then something came out of my mouth that I didn't understand. I said, uh, but you've got the wrong metaphor. It's not about the apple or the fruit. It's about the wilderness. And he said, okay, explain that to me. And I'm thinking, yeah, explain that. Because I had no idea what I was talking about. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'd never heard what I'm about to say before. I, ne- I don't think I ever heard it from anybody. I never thought it before. But I just start talking, and this came out. And you know, my wife and brothers will tell you that happens. Sometimes I just start talking without thinking. But I said, suppose I put you in a wilderness. And you were going to be a two days journey from the nearest source of water. So I'm going to also give you some water. He said, okay, I'm going to give you enough water, actually, that if you ration it, we'll get you where you need to go in two days. He said, all right. I say, I have two questions. This is the whole, you know, bear with me in this illustration. I'm going to ask you two questions. That's all I want you to answer. He goes, okay. My first question is, are you going to keep the water or are you going to throw it away? He said, I'm going to keep the water. I need it. I'm going to need it to get where I'm going. I said, yeah, but it's heavy. You know, there's a lot of water there. He said, I don't care if it's heavy. I need it. I said, okay, that's, that's question number one. Uh, now I'm going to tell you where the water supply is. It's due north of you, 
So if you walk two days, you will come to your, your source in, in two days' walk due north. Stay due north. He says, okay. And I said, now I'm going to give you a compass. He says, cool. You know, that, that really helps me. This guy was actually a hiker. So at this point, he was no longer panicked at all. You know, he knew he could do this. I said, okay, now my next question that I want you to answer is, are you going to keep the compass? He said, why would I keep the compass? It points north and I have to go north. So I'm going to keep the compass. I said, but it doesn't point north. He said, oh, the compass is broken. I said, no, the compass is working fine. It's just a compass never points true north. It points to magnetic north and that's not the same thing. See, magnetic north, depending on where you are near the magnetic poles, and depending on how strong that lodestone is in a compass, can be anywhere from 1 to 12 degrees off. There's a built-in error to that compass. And I'm telling you it's there, but I don't know how much it is. Are you still going to keep that compass? Now, at this point, he did not confess his sins and become a Christian, but he did smile at me and say, I've never heard that before. He said, yeah, I'm going to keep the compass. I said, that's the Bible. See, because you can't treat any of it like an error because anytime you say, you know what, I'm going to just trust my gut. I'm going to put this compass away. You're lost in the wilderness. And, and anybody like he was a hiker, he knew that. You can't trust your instincts. You can't say, I think I've been going this direction too long. I'm going to go this way. Anytime you start doing that, anytime in that two-day journey, you put that compass away, you're done. Anytime you say, this, this must not be right, you're done. You have to treat it as though it's pointing to true north, even though it might not be because it's your only hope of getting out of the wilderness. Now, the reason I'm putting all this here is because you know, one thing we decided to do is have the youth come. And, and the reason is because I was never, I never had this explained to me. I was ex- the way life was explained to me was the Bible's the inerrant word of God. You believe that or you go to hell. You want to believe that? I guess so. You know? And so as I got older and I started questioning some things, I started realizing, well, I don't know if I can believe that, so I guess I'm going to go to hell because I don't know what to do. So I'm, I'm trying to come up with what I can do, and I'm thinking what I need is a Bible I can believe in. And so I kind of sort of in my own mind made my own Bible. Now, this is actually a picture of a famous Bible. Uh, it was done by Thomas Jefferson. He literally had parts of the Bible he didn't like, and he literally cut them out of his book. Uh, this is on display, I think, in the Smithsonian. Uh, I don't need this. I don't need that. Now, if I had been honest about it, if I sat down as a theologian, you know, I'm going to study the Bible. I'm going to find all the error, and I'm going to get rid of the, just the parts that are erred. Uh, that probably would have at least been fair. But to be honest with you, I was 18 years old all the time and I had a girlfriend and I just wanted the parts out of the Bible that were kind of interfering with my life with my girlfriend. See, that's the part I wanted out. And all I want to do is come justification to get that out, which you can do easy these days. All you have to do is Google why is and type in a verse wrong and you'll have all these theologians tell you why that verse can be thrown out of the Bible. Just discount it. You don't need to do that. Uh, and so that's how I, that's what I did. I basically said, well, I don't like this verse. And this flee sexual immorality. I'm an 18 year old boy. I'm trying to find sexual immorality. What do you mean flee it? No, that's got to go. That must not be right. And so I came up with this abridged version of the Bible. So I'm still a Christian. I still believe in the Bible. Someone said, do you believe the Bible? Yes, I believe it was inspired. Yeah, except these parts I cut out. So we're good. And I went off in the world and the world cleaned my clock. See, I love to be that guy who gets to stand up here. Uh, like I've heard some pastors, you know, I tell you what, I have never strayed from the Bible personally, but I've heard others who have, and it's been a horrible thing, you know. No, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that uh, I am not your role model at Spirit Chapel. I am your object lesson. I don't know if you've ever seen this poster here, but it says mistakes. It could be the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. That's kind of where I am because what happened next wasn't pretty. 
I zipped through my 20s and 30s. I had two failed marriages, two divorces, and more pain and problems in my life than I can possibly tell you. And I kept wondering why Christianity was failing me, and it never occurred to me that an original Bible isn't part of Christianity. In fact, the Bible was created such, and this is something I didn't even know that day in California when I had the discussion, that it is when it's kept whole, when it's kept whole, self-correcting. This is the miracle of the Bible. It's put in there with certain tension deliberately. And as I explained last week, I believe Jesus curated the Bible. He selected every book that's in that Bible for a reason. And what it is, it, it, it contradicts something else. So you don't get too far out of sync on any one level. It's like the spokes of a bicycle wheel. Have you ever seen that? I don't think you guys are bicyclers. But if you, if you get a wobble in your wheel and it's rubbing against your brake, it's because your wheel is, this is kind of a cool expression, out of true. Your wheel's out of true. And the way you have to have fix that is where that bump is, you flip the wheel over and you adjust the spokes on the other side. It's the spokes of the other side where the problem is that actually fixes it and brings you back into true. It's like a perfect metaphor for the Bible. Because I believe there's a lot of these spokes out there and they pull things back into true, but that's only if you keep it all. Our problem is we don't want to. Our problem is we have some things that, that we don't want to do anymore. We're like, you know, or worse still, worse still, is when we're starting to listen to what others are telling us. Because they all have their motivation too. And believe it, none of it's holy and pure or even good. It's they, they just want you know, to go live their lives and they don't want you to be a downer. And if you're in their life, they want you to go with them in doing some of these things. And so you know, they'll put pressure on you. Well, that can't be true. It's going on all, all over right now. There's a bunch of stuff in the, in the world. People say, well, that can't be true. That can't be true. You know, God wouldn't mean that. Like we know. See, that's the problem. And this is something I didn't realize when I was 20-something and I was walking out with my bridge Bible even if Moses got it wrong, he's writer than I am. I wasn't there. How do I 3,000 years later know what Moses meant? I didn't hear God speak to Moses. He did. So if, he, if his pen slipped a little bit or something, how is that any worse off than me saying, I think God must have meant this, and just like for no reason at all picking these things up? Well, a lot of times you listen to your friends. Well, your friends are telling you, oh, that, that makes sense, and that makes sense. Let me tell you something about your friends in case you didn't know. Your friends are all idiots, they really are. I mean, and especially when you're young, because I can tell you this, because all my friends were idiots, and by the way, so were their friends, and that included me. None of us knew what we were doing. We're going along through life, and we're just trying to make, make it so that we could kind of stay good, but we could still have as much fun as we wanted, and what we didn't realize was that was going to destroy our lives. We didn't care. We were, we were young, and we were immortal when you're 18. It's like, everything's going to be fine forever. It's not. And so what, we ha- what, we ha- what I learned the hard way you know, after I'd gotten really beat up by life, was I was trying to do it with a Bible that wasn't holy, but rather it was my abridged version of it. So I want to um, I want to go back to this idea, and I want to just show you one thing, and then we'll stop. And some of you have heard this before because I've used this before, but I'm going to show you an area of the Old Testament, which is really important, that will be pulled into the New Testament, and it's going to look like they contradict each other, but they don't. And I'll show you how that gets used in a very powerful way. So I'm going to show you how the Bible is self-correcting, in other words. And the first scripture I'm going to show you is from the Psalms. It's the Old Testament. Uh, and by the way, there's a best-selling Christian book right now by a megachurch pastor that says that the Christian church needs to decouple itself from the Old Testament, just jettison it. We don't need it anymore. we got the New Testament. Just I don't understand what to say to that because Jesus apparently thinks we need the Old Testament. He gave it to us. Anyway, but, um, so in the Old Testament, this is, this is a psalm. It's written by David. Now let me set the stage for you. Here's what's just happened. David has just won a battle. 
He wins a lot of them. But this one was against the Philistine army that he had no business beating. Picture the Spartans, right? They're like a professional army. That's what the Philistines were in their day. They're the professional army, big standing professional army. David doesn't have that. They're mostly shepherds and farmers and bakers. Uh, They have a small standing army, but when he needs help, he calls out to everybody. And then people answer the call. It's a bunch of volunteer army. And a lot of times the people who answer the call are young people, you know, full of ideals. I'm going to go off to fight with King David. Off they go. You know, it sounds better than, you know, staying here on the farm. So they go off to battle. And so he's marching in a battle with this army that's mostly kids in his mind, you know, just kids. Uh, they're, probably, they're probably in high school, probably like, you know, juniors and seniors in high school, most of them. And they're going to go fight against this pitched army that has been training in warfare. And he realizes we're in trouble. And as they approach the battle, all the bravery of these people kind of starts falling because they realize, uh-oh, <laughs> they have real swords down there and they know how to use them. And they're kind of looking forward to using them on us. And what happens apparently is the, the, these young people cry out to the Lord because they know if you don't help us, we're done. We're done right now. And as they have this great victory, because they do win the day, and David marches everybody back in the temple to commemorate this, this is what he says. O Lord, our Lord, starting with God, how great is your name in all the earth. And you probably heard this expression before. For out of the mouths of babes, you have established strength. Therefore, to make, to make the enemy and the vengeful, the people seeking vengeance on us, cease. So he's saying, look, these kids, which him are like babes because David's a poet. These kids cried out to you and out of that outcry of fear that they cried out to you, you established a strength that came forward and defeated the army. And the reason he did that was to defeat the army and defeat the enemy. Oh, great God, how did you do that? That's amazing. You turned this cry of fear into strength. That's amazing. Okay, so now let me spin forward in the Bible uh, up into the book of Matthew, we're in the Gospels. Jesus is, is entering Jerusalem, and the Pharisees, as usual, were really upset with him. But this time, they're upset with him uh, for specific reasons. I love this. Uh, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did, now that really made him mad. You know, oh, he's doing wonderful things again. We must stop that. And the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Now, here's the amazing thing. I didn't really realize this um, until we were doing this study recently. Um, I don't even know how these kids knew the word Hosanna. Hosanna is an ancient Hebrew word, and by this time, they would have been being taught Greek. They were even reading uh, from the Septuagint in the the temple by this time, which was Greek. I don't even know how they knew this word. This may be the first example in the New Testament of someone speaking in tongues. They're crying out Hosanna. Hosanna means come near as God. Come to us, God. Come. He's come. Here's God. So it's like, it's like a cry that's answered by Emmanuel. So Hosanna to the son of David. And, and the Pharisee says, look, these kids have no idea what they're saying. And they, they may not have. He says, but you do. And you need to shut them up because they're blaspheming right now before God. Now, Jesus is going to reach back in Psalms 8, chapter, verse 2, although they didn't have verses back then. And he's going to quote it, but I want you to see this. He says this. He says, yeah, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you, God, capital you, you have perfected praise. So wait a minute. Does Jesus just misquote Psalms chapter 8? And by the way, if you look at the etymology of these words, you look them up in Hebrew, and there's no getting around. This is proper translation. Jesus said praise. David said strength. Same verse. How can Jesus get the quote wrong? He can't. 
Well, does that mean David was wrong? No, it doesn't. What that means is Jesus is reaching back in the Old Testament and he's adding to the definition a little bit the way we do. If you read a definition, there's never just one word. It means this. There'll be a phrase, right? Jesus is giving us the phrase. David wasn't wrong, but I'm going to add to that so you have a better picture of what really happened that day. What God heard wasn't kids crying out in fear. What God heard was praise. Well, wait a minute. How could that be? That's not praise. Crying out in fear cannot be praise. Of course it is. Praise is not when we tell God how great he is. Worship leaders, you need to know that. Mike Medved, you're listening online. You need to know this. Praise is not when we tell God how great he is. Praise is when we proclaim who God is. Great is one thing God is, but all we're doing is proclaiming God's nature. Our praise is basically just saying to God what's truth, right? So what happened in that day was they said, we're done without you. They turned to their heavenly father and said, we need you. God hears that as praise. That's not cry for help. That is praise, but he perfects it. Now, what Jesus is saying is out of the mouths of the base, because they don't know enough to get all caught up in their heads. They're just honest about it. They're just as honest as they can be. And from that honesty, it comes forth praise. And from the praise, God returns strength. Because in the language of heaven, apparently, strength and praise are synonymous. They're part of the same definition as far as God sees them. So let me show you this. Um, this, is, this is now moving forward again in the Bible. We're in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 16. And I'm not going to be able to spend a lot of time on this background story here. But basically, Paul and Silas are preaching. They're missionaries. They've been doing great. People are coming to the Lord. They're healing people. They heal the wrong person <laughs> because they heal somebody who somebody was making money on their infirmity. Uh, it's cast out a demon, but their people were making money on it. And so when they realize she's healed, they won't be able to do that anymore. And their hope of making money was gone. They grab Paul and Silas and they drag him in the marketplace to face the authorities. Hey, this is serious. They just messed with our money. And so they said, these men are Jews and they are making trouble in our city. All they did was they cast a demon out of a poor little girl who they were using to creep people out by sending them around. They'd hire her to go around cursing people. And, they, and she was kind of weird, you know, and got those eyes that kind of get spacey and those hair and like you see in the horror movies, that's what she was. And they're making money on, on this condition by selling her out to walk, people, walk around people cursing them. Um, and Paul delivers her, so now she's, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and in, in her sane mind. Well, we can't have that. Now we can't make any money. So it says they're making trouble in this city. In fact, they're suggesting practices that are against Roman law. You can't go casting out demons. That's against Roman law. We like demons. Um, so these are these things we can't even accept or take part in. And the crowd, they kind of incite the crowd, probably with money. They join in the attack against them. And the judges order that Paul and Silas be stripped and beaten with rods. Now, a rod is about a three-quarter inch thick hard piece of wood. So you could think about that as like a, maybe a thin baseball bat. This is not, okay, tap, tap. Mm -mm. They gave them to two people who really love punishing people and they take off their clothes. There's no fabric to protect them and they beat them with baseball bats. That's what they order them. But they're not done because these guys want them killed. They want to make an object lesson of them. So they beat them with these baseball bats and they're whipped without mercy and then they get thrown into prison. Now, the next day, they're going to be put on trial. The next day, the next morning, they're going to be put on trial. They're going to be accused of heinous crimes, some of which probably won't be true. And depending on how the defense goes, they'll probably be killed. We're going to give you a fair trial, then we're going to kill you. That's what they're planning on doing. And to make sure 
that Paul, who's a brilliant orator and a lawyer, can't defend himself. They beat him literally unconscious first. And then they take him and they chain him into the middle of the dungeon. And they leave him there. The next day, he's going to have to defend himself. Good luck. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, anything near this, where you've had, had to, to kind of get comfortable in a place even that's not comfortable. Ever been there camping or something? I actually got uh, arrested uh, outside of Wichita, Kansas, in front of a, an abortion clinic once. And it was a lot of us. And so they kind of had a system set up where they'd take us and they would put us in this school gymnasium. And man, they didn't give us any seats. We had to sit on the hard gymnasium floor. And uh, it was cold down there. And my back would start hurting, you know. And my bottom got a little bit cold. And it was miserable. We weren't allowed to talk even. We had to just sit there. It was miserable. Like I can't even tell you how we were there for six hours. And when we were all done, they released us and we had to sign a piece of paper that said we wouldn't go back uh, that day and then they let us go. It was awful, but I'm not going to tell Paul that when I see him in heaven. You know, some people talk about how they want to meet the apostles you know, in heaven. Not me. I don't want to have that conversation with Paul. I mean, my luck, I'll stumble up, but I won't know it's Paul. We'll be sitting around a fire telling stories and I'll come up, hey, what you guys talking about? Hey, Pastor Christ, come over. We're talking about the times when we suffered for the, for the kingdom's sake. You have any stories? Well, I was arrested once. Oh, tell us about that story. Okay, I was arrested. Did he beat you? No, they're kind of real polite. And they took us in a car. What kind of a car? Well, it was padded. And they took us to this, you know, this place and, and we had to sit on the floor, but they didn't give us pillows. Oh, you know, and my bottom got a little cold and I had to sit there for hours. And then what? I just signed a paper we had to go. Oh, okay. Paul, you were telling us about your story? Well, I was going to tell you I was beat senseless with a concussion and my eye swelled up, but that bottom being cold sounds tough too. You know what I mean? I don't think I really want to have that conversation personally. But uh, anyway, but I can just tell you from that little moment in my life, man, it's when you can't get comfortable, that's hard. You know, or if you ever cracked a rib or something, that's, man, you crack a rib, you the, move the wrong way, can't breathe quite right, you know? They cracked ribs, split skull, swollen eye, maybe lost some teeth, knocked unconscious, and then they chain him and they stick him in a damp dungeon so he can't get comfortable at all. In the morning, by the way, Paul, you have to defend yourself for your life. Good luck, right? Now, I wonder where we would be if we were Christians who saw this back then. Ooh, I guess Paul's lacking faith, huh? Because Peter got let go. Paul had to get beat up, thrown in prison. Paul is lacking faith. God must not love as much as he loves Peter, I guess. You know, that's really bad. I guess their ministry is not really pleasing the Lord because we want that to be true is the problem. And Christians say things like that all the time when bad things happen to another Christian because we want it to be something they did. We don't want to think bad things can happen to us. You see, if it's stuff we can control, then it's better. That's what we say. But Paul hadn't done anything wrong. He was exactly where God wanted him to be. Sometimes bad things do happen to good people. Sometimes we must sacrifice for the kingdom, not often taught today in America, but it's true. Sometimes we do. And so they're sitting there and you could forgive them, I think, if they got a little bit bitter while they're sitting in prison. They didn't do anything wrong. Where was God helping them? He got beat up. They got thrown in there. They're bloody and beaten and they, they're just sore. You could imagine what they're like when they finally come to. It takes them to about midnight before they wake up from their beating. You can imagine what's going through their minds, right? I at least know what would be going through my mind. I mean, I'm out of this. I don't like this at all. So about midnight, Paul and Silas wake up. Now the prisoners can't see him because it's dark. 
but they can hear him. And they hear him praying. Okay, I could see that. Trying to pray for help, probably, right? I would. Get us out of here, Lord. We didn't do anything wrong. Oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? Some prayer like that. That'd be my prayer, I'll be honest. And the prisoners are probably sitting there and wondering what's going to happen next. What are these two holy people going to do next? They're in a prison. They're going to be killed tomorrow. They're beaten up tonight. What happens next? And they're listening, you know. And from the prison they hear, holy, holy, holy. Are you kidding me? Lord God Almighty. They're singing early in the morning. Our song shall rise to thee. They lifted their voice and started singing to the Lord. Praising the Lord. And the other prisoners started listening. That is astonishing. I don't even know where that comes from. Where does that kind of faith come from? Well, the kind of faith comes from knowing the truth, and that's nothing on earth is as important as the presence of God. And they were starting to sing because they needed the presence of God. Like, that's all they needed. That's all they wanted. That's all they're after. They just want God's presence in their life. And so they start praising him. But I think Paul knew what Jesus had done with Psalms 8-2. And I think they were praying and praising because they needed strength. And suddenly there was a powerful earthquake. Because where God comes with his presence, he also comes with his power. And he also comes with his glory. And this prison could not contain the glory of God and start shaking on its very foundations. It shook the prison from top to bottom and all at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains just fell off them. There was a huge prison break, by the way. Everybody left except Paul and Silas. Everybody ran for their lives. Paul and Silas stayed there. They weren't done with the song yet. They're praising the Lord. What do they care? God's here. Why would I leave? God's here. See, praising God does not mean he will come and release you from prison, but it does mean that he will come. And I believe that what we see here that took place in Philippi, I believe that what we see is actually the execution of what Jesus was trying to tell us. You need, you need help in your life? Start with praise. Because through praise, God brings strength. Now, he would go on, of course, to um, defend himself and, and move on from here. This wasn't the end of Paul. But he had to know the scriptures in order to understand that. He had, he had to understand what God meant. It isn't just I read memorized scriptures. It's I know the scripture reveals God. And I know who God is. And I know if he comes here in his presence, that's all I need. There may be absolutely nothing on earth more powerful than this. And that is the praise of a righteous man in need of his God. That may be the most powerful force on earth. And you don't have to, it doesn't matter how well it sounds. I don't think they were in great voice that night. It just matters it's sincere. And they're praising God because they're saying, all I need is you. And this changes everything in life. If you understand that the Bible is useful in these kind of moments, then you don't mind so much spending some time learning. Because here's the paradox of uh, Christianity. You need the Bible most in these moments of your life. Things are going right well, right now, really well, you know. You don't need your Bible. It's like, I'm good. Got this. God blesses me. I don't need the Bible. I'm good. I'm all right. It's the dark moments you need the Bible, but you only learn them in the quiet moments. If you're not paying attention now, you won't have it later when you need it. That's the problem. God gives these moments of peace so that we can take it, and we don't. Well, I'm good. I'll, I'll call you when I need you. 
but then you won't have what you need. The Bible is the single greatest weapon that you have to fight back against a world that is set against you. And if you don't know the world's out to get you, you haven't been paying attention. Because it is. And the Bible is your defense. And without it, you're going to kind of try to do it on your own. And I'm just telling you, somebody tried to do that. It doesn't work out well. And now when someone asks me if I believe in the Bible, I say, yep, from Genesis to maps. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. And I pray that you'll continue